In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. On this eighth day of Pascha, my brothers and sisters, with six more Sundays to go, and finishing on the 50th day of Pascha, the Pentecostus, let us consider three subjects related to the resurrection of Christ our Lord. First, let us consider the continuing presence of Christ with his church. When a loved one dies, we miss that person. If Jesus had simply died, we would miss him. In a sense, we do miss him, but not the way we miss others of our loved ones who've died. Because we know him to be alive, and he's still among us as living. In the book of Revelation, John tells us what he saw on the Lord's Day. He specifies it's the Lord's Day. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like a son of man. When John saw him, he tells us, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. That is to say, he is present by reason of his resurrection. Where? Is he present? What are those lampstands among which he walks? He himself tells us the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Seven being the number of perfection and totality. The risen Jesus is present among the churches that invoke his name. He's just as present now as he was in that upper room when he encountered the prophet Thomas. Indeed, what did he say to Thomas at that time? He spoke to Thomas about the rest of us. He referred to the people who worship God and would worship God with the risen Christ in Chicago, a little church on Newport, Jesus referred to us. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, but yet have believed. Now, provided our lampstand has not been removed, and I, have, I believe in my lifetime a number of lampstands have been removed. Aside from that danger, 
when we gather together as a church, it is infallibly true that the risen Christ is among us. Each Sunday, shortly before receiving Holy Communion, you hear the prayer in which the priest directly directs, addresses Christ our Lord, and I always say it loud enough to be heard, as the one invisibly present among us. We do not see him, but we know him to be here. Now, when Jesus said this to Thomas, one of the people standing by was Simon Peter. And Simon Peter refers to those words that Jesus spoke to Thomas. I quote Peter this morning. This will be the first of several times I quote the first epistle of Peter. Peter writes of praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, not having seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with hope, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Same vocabulary as in the, the scene in John. It was of ourselves then that Jesus told Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The risen Christ is with us, however, not only when we gather together in the Himira Kiriaki, the, the Lord's Day for worship, but also every day in our homes when we open the sacred scriptures. When your parents open the Bible each day and read the Bible to your family, your children, Christ is just as present. He's present the same way he was with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. He's there to throw light on the meaning of the scriptures. Each day as we invoke the Holy Spirit and open the sacred scriptures, Jesus takes his place among us just as surely as he walked with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. Just as surely as when he was with them when they went into the inn. When we listen to God's word each day, the risen Jesus becomes our companion along the road. I remind you of these things by way of stirring you on to ever greater efforts in the reading of the scriptures in your homes. The opening of the Bible and the reading of God's word will also make Jesus present on a bus or the blue line. Maybe not the red line, but at least the blue line. <laughs> Second, let us consider the effect of the resurrection on those who bore witness to it. The revelation of God's purpose and power in the resurrection of his son was accomplished. Not only through the event itself, but also in the altered consciousness of those to whom it was revealed. Our own knowledge and understanding of the, of the resurrection is determined by the historically effective consciousness of the original witnesses. God did not reveal the resurrection to us as an objective fact. I'm not saying it's not an objective fact. I believe it to be an objective fact. But he did not reveal it to us as an objective fact. He revealed it to us through the experience of those who saw him risen from the dead. 
It's important to reflect on the manner in which the resurrection was revealed. We must first remark that none of those witnesses actually saw the resurrection. They did not watch it happening. They did not televise it. They were not there with a flash camera and taking pictures of it. The significance of their witness did not consist solely in their objective observation of it. Although we Christians hold the resurrection of Christ to be an objective historical fact, Holy Scripture does not present its plain and unadorned objectivity as the form of the revelation. Not one of those original saints to whom the gospel was once delivered was permitted to view the resurrection as one might view a waterfall or the flight of a bird. Now, God could have revealed the resurrection in this way. Could have televised it. There are those who believe that, in fact, that's what happened in the, in the shot of Turin. He took, it, he took a picture of it. The Christian witness has never relied on the shroud of Turin. It's always relied on the experience of those who saw the risen Christ the apostles, and the holy women. The truth of it was conveyed not by the factual observation of an it, but through the personal encounter with a thou. The fact of the resurrection was conveyed to the saints in a completely interpersonal context. Believers learned the objective fact through their encounter, their personal encounter, with the risen Christ. The fact of the resurrection was subsumed into personal experience. The consciousness of the chosen of the chosen witnesses was altered by seeing, hearing, and touching the beloved Savior, who called them by name and forcefully intruded his person into their conscious experience. And that body of believers has never been the same since. Year after year, century after century. Our consciousness has been transformed by this interpersonal intrusion of the risen Lord whose overwhelming presence brings to bear on our attention, effecting a new and completely non-negotiable awareness. Third, and finally, let us consider the resurrection of Christ and the Christian moral life. If I seem to be skipping pages up here, I am. <laughs> I'm sensing a little restlessness among the natives. And I can't blame them. They've been in church an awful long time the last few weeks. Let us consider the resurrection of Christ and the Christian moral life. That is to say, the resurrection and how we are to live. I believe it's important to make a point of this connection because there are shelves and shelves of books about Christian morality in which the resurrection of Christ was not so much as mentioned. 
I have most of those books. Books on Christian morality. From such works, these numerous works, one would never guess that, that the proper Christian behavior has anything to do with the Lord's resurrection. They're, they're rule books. They're rule books. What's good, what's bad. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not Christian morality. During the course of my studies as a young man, I had 10 semesters of moral theology altogether. 10 semesters. My moral theology courses dealt entirely with moral virtues and how to cultivate them, and with Ten Commandments and how to break them. I thought that was funnier than apparently you thought it was. <laughs> to the best of my recollection, it has been nearly half a century ago. What do you mean nearly half? It's every bit of half a century ago. During all those 10 semesters, the resurrection of Christ was not named a single time. In considering the resurrection and the Christian moral life, we should begin by observing how frequently the New Testament uses the word, therefore. Therefore. There's the pivotal word. When the New Testament talks about how we're supposed to live, it normally introduces that section by saying, therefore. Simple constraints of time rendered impossible this morning to take very many examples. Well, let us consider a few at least. Because there are so many instances of the moral, therefore, in the New Testament, I will limit my comments this morning to a single book. There's one book. The first epistle of Peter. This book, which is a sort of post-baptismal catechesis, begins with the resurrection of Jesus. Peter writes. This is right after the introduction, verses 1 and 2. He goes right into his, his barakah. Barakata Adonai, Eloheinu. He's a Jew, that's why he prays. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, his chesed, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in the heaven for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul continues, Peter continues in this vein for a few verses and then abruptly declares, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that has been brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. See the, see the moral, therefore? This has happened, therefore this must happen. The critical word here, the link word, the hinge word, is the one we are most likely to miss. The word, therefore. This word serves 
as the pivot in Peter's moral argument. The resurrection of Jesus is the moral premise. The obligation of holiness is the moral inference. An argument has to have a therefore. No matter what kind of argument you use, there has to be a therefore. Thus, Peter goes on to give us moral exhortation. I continue the same verse. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. Now, what makes certain thoughts, what makes certain words, certain attitudes, certain actions sinful? In the Old Testament, because they violate the law of God, the Torah. In the New Testament, because these thoughts, these sentiments, these actions, these words are incompatible with living the resurrection life. That's what makes them sinful. Peter's not finished. The second chapter of this epistle begins, Therefore, laying aside all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil talk, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed, there's a hypothetical syllogism I recognize, if indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now notice the structure of Peter's moral argument. He does not appeal to the commandments to prove that malice is wrong. He could do that. He could prove that malice is wrong by an examination of malice and the meaning of life and all sorts of ways of proving that malice is wrong. He demonstrates the evil of malice because it's incompatible with the resurrection in which the grace and goodness of God has been revealed to us. Malice is something incompatible with that. It's that incompatibility, that therefore, that renders malice wrong for the Christian. In fact, it's more wrong for the Christian than it is for anybody else because the Christian has more reason not to be malicious. Peter does not demonstrate the evil of deceit, hypocrisy, or envy by appealing to the mandates of the Pentateuch. Rather, we eschew malice because God, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We lay aside deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and sins of the tongue because God the Father has called us to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven. Anything that corrupts, that brings about corruption, is wrong. And we recognize it is wrong because we're sharers in immortality. What about political life? This is a political year. What about political life? I don't know about you, but I'm going to choose my candidate this year on the basis of the resurrection. And I can't do anything else and still claim to be a Christian, according to the Bible. Even the Christian political life pivots on a therefore. Just a few verses after this, Peter writes, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors, or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, 
with the praise of those who are good. You mentioned that. The resurrection determines how we live in politics. The resurrection of Christ, with which God has begotten us to a lively hope, determines even our relationship to the civil government. We vote. We obey traffic laws. We pay taxes. Okay. Because Christ rose from the dead and lives among us. It affects every aspect of our lives. This is why we don't, we're not crooked in business. Why we don't defraud, defraud the laborer. This is why we take care of the homeless and the sick. This is, this, it determines how we think politically. The resurrection of Christ. Everything we do in this world, we do because Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death and giving life to those in the tomb. Because we are blood-bought Christians, risen with Christ, we have an entirely new pattern of life. Such is the meaning of the Christian wherefore. In the fourth chapter of this same epistle, Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his life in the flesh and the lusts of men, but for the will of God. This is why we keep our minds clean and our bodies pure. Because Christ is risen and lives within us. And our flesh partakes of his glory and immortality. All Christian imperative is founded on a new component in human experience. Namely, the power of the resurrection and the presence of the risen Christ among us. The reason we do not engage in physical lust or mental lust or covetousness or drunkenness or the use of drugs, or anything else. The reason we don't do that is because of the reality of the risen Christ present in our bodies and our souls. Why do we patiently endure provocation? For what reason do we refuse to retaliate when we are insulted? Why, why do we turn the other cheek? It's because the God and Father of Jesus Christ has sanctified us with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Therefore, says Peter, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Our moral conscience day by day must be transformed by the therefore of the resurrection. This one word is the pivot and hinge of our lives.